there and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2023 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the second episode of 2023 in review, I'm jumping into the archives to feature some of the incredible content creators who I've had the pleasure of speaking with over the last year, including bloggers, podcasters, and even a pop culture icon. It was awesome getting them all on the podcast to talk about Vegas and share their fantastic work with all of you. Enjoy. Over the course of doing this podcast, I've had several listeners reach out to me with questions about casino comps, tier statuses, and loyalty programs. And even though I'm a member of several different Vegas casino loyalty programs, I really have no idea how any of them work. So for episode number 144 of the podcast, I turned to a true expert. Sean Coomer is the founder and editor of Miles to Memories, a website dedicated to maximizing the benefits of travel reward and loyalty programs, including casino loyalty programs. Sean is also a Las Vegas native and host of the Miles to Memories Las Vegas podcast. We covered a lot of ground during our conversation, including the right way, and maybe even more importantly, the wrong way to level up within your favorite casino loyalty program. So nowadays, rewards programs do track all of your spend, and that is a good way to improve your status is, you know, spending on hotel rooms, spending on the restaurants, everything you do using, for example, MGM rewards across all their properties, you can charge something and you will gain status through that. And you can also gamble at their various casinos and, you know, improve status that way. But the truth is, you know, I've lived in Las Vegas a long time. And my dad always said those big casinos aren't built uh, with winners, right? People losing money is the name of the game. So if you're improving your status, chances are you're making them money. And while everybody has a system, right? The Most of the time I've lived in Las Vegas. Let's, let's put it this way. I've lived in Las Vegas a long time and I've heard a lot of stories from gamblers and how they've figured out the system and how they're doing good. And generally that's just never the case. And if you do find a small loophole or something, you know, the chances are they'll close it or that you're the only one who has figured it out. They base everything on a theoretical expected loss. So when you sit down and you're playing a machine, they know what the house advantage of that machine is. And they see how big your bet, how many times an hour you're betting. And they use a complicated algorithm to basically tell them what you're going to do there. And the same thing with table games, it it works a little bit differently. So if far as gambling and spending, you can definitely improve your status there. But thankfully in the last few years, casinos have gotten aggressive with status matches, which I think are probably the biggest opportunity, unless you're a, a big gambler to get some benefits in Las Vegas. And I have status with a lot of the casinos. I don't gamble very much at all. I'm glad you brought up status matching because this is something that I did want to ask about. Um, Do you feel that things like status matching and programs like Founders Card have devalued these casino loyalty programs to a certain degree? This is a complaint that I've I've heard a few times and seen a few times on social media from people who um, 
traditionally earn their status the old-fashioned way by gambling a crap ton of money, as opposed to someone like me who signs up for a founder's card, pays the membership fee, turns that into Diamond at Caesars. I then walk across the street to an MGM property and go up to the desk there and get that Diamond at Caesars status matched into gold with MGM. Uh, are, Are folks like me ruining it for everybody? Yeah, in some way it is. It's devaluing the benefits and it's made them focus more on creating levels or benefits for people who play. Like we've seen that with Caesars splitting out Caesars diamond tier into different tiers based on how much you play. So now the base level diamond is far less valuable than it used to be. Um, You know, you speak of founder's card. That's how I got my diamond status uh, back in the day. It's actually how I still get my diamond status uh, because I think it's a good deal and I'm locked in at a good price with them. But back when Founders Card was the only way really to get diamond status with Caesars, it was great. Like the diamond lounges were open and you could go there every night and eat and free drinks. I mean, great free drinks, top level booze and everything else. And there were other, you know, sort of perks that went away, you know, as more and more people were able to match. So today's diamond status is not what it was a few years ago. And I definitely think that has to do with more status matches. Caesars started matching MGM a lot more. And then, of course, they had a partnership with Wyndham where people could get Wyndham status through a match and then match to Caesars. And it all became very good if you knew how to take advantage of it. But in the end, that stuff never lasts. And Caesars responded and they've taken away some benefits. So, yeah, I feel like the more elites you get in a tier, the less valuable the benefits will be in the long term. So it's good to take advantage like early when when the opportunities come along. The first year that I had Founders Card was, uh, I think it was 2019 or 2018, right in around there. And yeah, at that time, as you say, like it was, um, there was no level other than the seven stars at at uh, at Caesars. There was no level above Diamond. So yeah, you signed up for that Founders Card and paid the money for the membership, and then rolled into your your Diamond at Caesars, and all of a sudden, holy cow! Like yeah, you were getting some serious. Um, you were getting some serious benefits. You were no resort fees and yeah, the, the diamond lounges and the front of the line and the, the free show tickets and the celebration meal and all that stuff. And yeah, a lot of that stuff has now scaled back to the point where you have to earn it unless you've earned diamond or you've earned diamond elite or whatever it is. You're not getting any of that stuff. So if you used to get all that stuff, it's because of people like me and Sean that you don't get that stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah, probably. But also I feel like corporations have moved to cut back on their budgets. A good example is the Diamond or Laurel lounges here in Las Vegas. There was, what, six of them back uh, up until basically COVID, and they've been shuttered and they're gone. And it's not because of people like us, because they had made a move to require you to use tier points to to get in. So they had kind of taken people like you and me out of the equation unless we gambled enough to get points. But also they just figured they didn't need to offer the benefit And now they give drink vouchers to seven stars and whatever, and they don't have to staff the lounge and do everything that they did. And I really can't emphasize enough how good those lounges were, especially for a local. Like my wife and I both had diamond status and there was nights where we would go do date nights with friends and, you know, have a few drinks and go have a nice time on the strip. Maybe you'd start at Paris, have a couple of drinks there, spend a couple hours, end up at Caesar's Palace, get another drink. And it was really valuable while it lasted But yeah, I I feel like status matches combined with corporate Las Vegas and the maturation of, you know, bean counters and corporate decision making have really taken away some of the cooler stuff that you can get. 
there's a perception out there right now that the comps are getting worse. And I've noticed this to a certain degree. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a guy who only gambles three or 400 bucks a trip, um, I'm just happy to get whatever I can get for free. I'm not complaining, but I have certainly noticed a decrease in the amount that I'm getting. Um, it feels like as Vegas is coming back, as the hotels and casinos are getting busier, as things are starting to pick up, the resorts are getting stingier with the comps. Is that, um, is that reality or is that just a perception? Yeah, the comps are getting worse. And it, I think a few reasons are because what I talked about, the loyalty programs are more mature than they've ever been. Their algorithms are more mature. And so they're better able to target the people they want to target. And, you know, if they, they're able to figure out what your value is to them pretty quickly. And so that does hurt, especially for people who don't gamble as much. But also to your point, the casinos and hotels are busier than ever. You know, I think we're 13 or 14 months of record gaming revenue on the strip. Uh, average room rate is at all time highs, significantly more than it was pre COVID and occupancy rates are very high as well. So there's less rooms for them to give away. And I also think that we got kind of skewed a little bit because COVID saw a lot of comps, right? You got a lot of, they were trying to fill their hotel rooms. They were doing a lot to make people come. And then they needed to stop that because people were coming anyway. And it's just a typical sort of corporate thing where they figured out where they're wasting money by being overly generous and they've pulled back a lot. So I do agree. Comps seem less, especially free hotel nights, less free play, less incentive. So people who used to get maybe $200 in free play and uh, free weekend nights, you know, now are getting comp offers for just free weekday nights with no free play. So even when people are getting offers, they're just not as good. As anyone who's a regular listener to the podcast knows, I absolutely love food. In fact, the food scene is one of my favorite parts of visiting Vegas, and it's always great to be able to check out new spots and share my experiences with you. So whenever I have a chance to talk food with someone on the podcast, I will jump at that opportunity. Back on episode number 157, I was joined by Las Vegas restaurant and food critic, John Curtis. John has been writing about the Vegas food scene since the mid-1990s. He's the author of the book, Eating Las Vegas, The 52 Essential Restaurants. He's the creator of the Eating Las Vegas blog, and he's the co-host of the podcast, Eat, Talk, Repeat. One of the many things that John and I talked about during our conversation was the shift that the Vegas food scene has gone through in the years since he started covering it. Back then, the philosophy of every hotel, every hotel had the same four or five restaurants in it. They all had a coffee shop, they had a cheap buffet, and it was cheap. They were none of these highfalutin like went on core buffets, Bellagio, where it's, you know, $100 a person for all you can eat. This was, these were, you know, $9.95, $15.95 special. Uh, they would have an Italian restaurant uh, of some ilk. And then they, but they, and then they would have a continental restaurant or a, you know, I would say from what continent, we don't know, <laughs> you know or, 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 or a gourmet room. Which was always where you know they had the tuxedo guys and uh, you know flaming something table size and steak Diane and and Caesar salads and and my, and I and back in the eighties and nineties I ate in these places and most of them were not not that good but they were they were they were Vegas good but that was the philosophy that every hotel had to capture its customers keep them there to gamble and eat 
And that was it. Um, and the re- the first restaurant that came to town and kind of broke the mold was when Ruth's Chris showed up in 1989. And I interviewed the, uh, the, uh, the fellow who brought it here, a guy named Marcel Taylor, who was a dealer at Caesar's Palace. And he met Ruth Fertel, who was the Louisiana gal, who at that point had like four or five Ruth's Chris in the Southeast. And, and he said, why don't you bring one to, to Vegas? And her response to him was, my board of directors will never go for it because nobody eats outside of the casinos in Las Vegas. Every casino has their own customers. They don't, nobody goes, nobody walks from the frontier to the desert inn or the desert inn, you know, down to Caesar's Palace to eat. They just all keep their customers in house. Well, he, they, he talked her into doing it. They opened up Paradise Road in 19, in late 1989. And within six months, it was the leading Ruth's Chris moneymaker. And within a year, Morton's and Palm showed up. And within about 18 months, the Las Vegas uh, out, outposts of those chain steakhouses were making more than all the other, all, every other one they had in, in, in their in their galaxy of, of uh, franchises. Uh, and that's what inspired Wolfgang Puck and Emeril Lagasse to come here. Mm-hmm. So, but But they had to break the mold. And the mold wasn't broken with celebrity chefs. That was... That was about five years later that started. Back then it was, you had to see if people were willing to leave the hotels to eat somewhere. Mm-hmm. And and these chain steakhouses were the ones that did it. Amazing, but true. Yeah. So was that then, do you think that was what caused that shift in that the casinos kind of looked and went, oh shit, people are leaving to go eat. Yeah. We need to do right. something to, to, to keep them here. So let's invite Wolfgang Puck and Emeril Lagasse and these guys exactly. to come in and open their places in our places. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And they, they said, oh yeah, but when people were going off script to the, I mean, Morton was in a mall, Palms was in a mall, uh, Chris was, was, uh, was about a block off the strip and they looked around and, and the people that noticed was, uh, it became nationally known in the early 90s that the amount of wine and vodka and beer and steaks and salads that these chain steakhouses were moving at, through Vegas was, was astronomical. And then, you know, like any businesses, the, the, the rumors and the facts, you know, suddenly become uh, well known. And when that happened, uh, yeah, they realized there was gold in the them the, our hills. You know what I mean? We got to do something to up our game. And the guy who really did, you know, break them all was Wolfgang Puck. I mean, I like to talk about the chain steakhouses because that's just historical fact. But Puck was the guy who opened Spago. And uh, and the the funny part, within a year, the Spago was making more money uh, in a week. The Spago Vegas was making more cash in a week than the Spago Los Angeles was making in a month. Wow. And that's that's really got everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wolfgang Puck still talks about it. He said it was just... And when people saw that, that's when that led to MGM upping its game with uh, Emeril Lagasse and Charlie Trotter and Mark Miller. And then the, the big earthquake was when the, 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 the Bellagio opened in October 1998 and October 15th, 1998. And that's when you had Le Cirque and Michael Mina came to town and, and uh, Jean-Georges von Gerichten opened Prime and uh, Aqua. Uh, Le Cirque, uh, Picasso with Julian Serrano, who at the time, people forget this, he was the number one chef 
with the number one restaurant in San Francisco. And the Bellagio enticed him to come down to Las Vegas in 1997, opened in 1998, with a very high-toned Picasso French restaurant with actual Picassos, about a dozen of them hanging around the around the place. And this got everybody's attention. Suddenly, by night, I still have the Wine Spectator from, I think, the summer of 1999, where they're talking about Las Vegas is the new gastronomic destination in the world. And that was the big, big news right then. I love discovering new Vegas podcasts and getting to share them with all of you. And if I have a chance to have the host of that podcast on my show, well, that's just an added bonus. I was joined on episode number 168 of my podcast by Brian Ortega, the host of Concierge Confidential. Every episode, Brian gives his listeners an inside look at the world of Las Vegas and the people who work in it. And having worked as a concierge at a large Vegas strip hotel, Brian has lots of great stories as well as amazing tips and tricks for Vegas visitors and locals alike. That being said, Brian does face some of the same challenges as a Vegas podcaster that I do. One of those being finding new places to go to so his episodes don't get repetitive. It's actually been the hardest part because I know what I like. I know what I'm going to enjoy when I go out. I usually go out once a week to do these um, just to sort of, you know, keep the budget down because it can get very expensive. But also just trying to try something new, but also have a good time out in, in town. But yeah, I've actually tried different foods that I never thought I'd try. Like I went to the Aria and I tried a uh, Bardot, which is a French uh brasserie. I think I got it right. And I tried uh, escargot for the first time because I had had steak so many times. I had had so much of the same foods that I said, I need to try something different. And I tried escargot and I found out that I actually enjoyed it. It actually wasn't bad. So it is actually a really good way of pushing you outside of your comfort zone for sure. Um, There's still things that I have trouble sort of, you know, coming to terms with like me and sushi don't always get along so i don't like sushi but uh i i found that i actually really enjoy japanese cuisine which is very odd so i find that doing this actually does help me be much more open to different cuisines which i think there's actually cuisines that are coming into town that are really becoming trendy uh that uh I think are, are definitely going to you know take over, and there's certain things that I think that are going to come to town uh, pretty soon for uh, for the masses. One of your recent episodes I listened to talking about trends, you talked about the Mediterranean restaurants yeah. that seem to be just blowing up in Las Vegas right now, and that is it's weird how Vegas goes through those yeah. those trends, right? And and it's, it's, right. it's whatever, I guess, you know, hence it's trendy. Whatever's yeah. trendy and whatever's big and popular seems to just roll into Vegas like a force of nature and take over every property on the strip. And then six months or a year from now, some of that stuff seems to all sort of go away. No, it's it's so true. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. It was like, there was like one Mediterranean restaurant on the strip for the longest time when I was working as a concierge and I want to say 2000, 2008, 2009, sorry, 2008, 2018, 2019. And we had a Mediterranean restaurant. It was called uh, the Greek Sneak. Or so it's, it's Greek. And it was like one of the only places on the strip. And now at the, at the Venetian, the Venetian has like three Mediterranean restaurants all within like 50 feet of each other. They have one which is called Flora Sul, which is 
like not my thing. I went there and I tried it out and I wasn't a fan of it. But some people love it. It's big for like bachelorette parties. It has live music. They wave like the the handkerchiefs and it's cool, but it's very, very expensive. They also have uh, Ha Salong, which is actually just below it, which is a very high-end Mediterranean cuisine that just opened maybe a couple weeks ago. And that place has huge buzz around it. And they even have uh, Mazan, which I believe is uh, like a, it's sort of like a stand, which is also Mediterranean cuisine. And then they have, uh, they also have uh, Milo's, which is a really well-known uh, like uh, Mediterranean restaurant uh, at the Venetian. So it's hard for all of them to compete with each other, for sure. Like, I'm sure that one of them will close at some point, probably uh, Fleur Lassou. Um, but <laughs> you, you, you just see them everywhere. And I think I said it in the, in the episode that I think a lot of that cuisine, I mean, even Cathedral, which is over at uh, the Aria, that one's actually a very, a very beautiful restaurant. I actually had gone there for the grand opening. I knew a, a nightclub host who invited me to go. I, went, I was able to go. And the cuisine itself is said to be Mediterranean, Italian, a lot of very European flavors. But anyways, I believe that the reason they're becoming so popular is because a lot of Americans are trying to be much more health conscious. They know they also just want to try something different. And I think Mediterranean cuisine is a way to do that. A lot of, a lot of vegan, a lot of vegetarian options in Mediterranean cuisine. So I think that has a lot of legs. But I think Vegas is very, very trendy. Like for, I mean, one of my favorite things that came to Vegas was supper clubs that is actually like just a recycle of like the 1950s and 60s where you had all of these shows, you know, dinner shows that they they like those now because it's so expensive to actually go to a show nowadays in Vegas and dinner that why don't we just put them together? So Mayfair brought that back back when I was still working in the hotels and now Delilah's, which is actually, I believe, from New York and then LA and now they have it here in Las Vegas. And I think those are actually one of the better trends that are coming to Vegas. And they're not coming so fast because it takes a lot to conceptualize it. But things like speakeasies, I used to love to go to speakeasies. But oh my God, there's so many now that it's actually not even fun. It's it's not fun finding one anymore. It's just, it is what it is. But that's a trend that I think is on its way out. But I think it's, we're just oversaturating the market of speakeasies. One of my all-time favorite Vegas podcasts has been the series Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, from the Las Vegas Review-Journal and the Mob Museum. The first two seasons were absolutely incredible, and I've been waiting with bated breath for season three to arrive, and it's finally here. And the subject of season three is one of the most colorful characters in Las Vegas' history, Oscar Goodman. Oscar has been a part of the Vegas scene since the mid-1960s when he moved to town to be an attorney and ended up with some of the most notorious organized crime figures ever on his client list. Oscar also served three terms as the mayor of Las Vegas and even contemplated a run to be the governor of Nevada. Back on episode number 161 of this podcast, I was joined by John Katzlametis, columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal and host of season three of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas. John had a lot of great stories to share about his time working with Oscar on this project, including how he managed to convince Oscar to be a part of it. It was interesting because at, the, at first he said, yeah, if you want to do it, let's do it. You know, it was kind of like he was originally trusting me just with the whole thing you know, whatever we want to do. And then when we started moving into it, he was like, now what is this going to be again? What's it going to be on? What's it going to be? And he kept asking me what, uh, you know, he wasn't too um, 
in tune with what podcasts were exactly. And I kept saying, you know, this is like an audio documentary. Look at it that way. It's like a, a radio documentary. It's radio essentially format. And uh, what's this again? What's what are we doing again? And he kept coming in, you know, and we kept talking. And, and uh, then we were talking about um, and have talked about uh, putting what we went through in book form, making a book out of it, which is still something I'm very interested in. And he is too. He's really interested in that because there's so much good material. We got the best of Oscar. In this. There's no question about that. We got the best of him through this process. Another thing I'll tell you about um, learning how to uh, speak with Oscar over a, a long horizon is we go into the plaza and we sat at the pretty much the same booth every time we'd sit down and I had my fizzy water, I had Pellegrino there and we'd get it, get everything set up and Oscar needed to have a martini and uh, the martini set there, or we'd call for it, you know, and this was off hours at Oscar. So there was somebody on the F and B team who was, who was handling this. I said, we don't need the, we don't need the prop, Oscar. This is all audio, unless we are just taking, you know, individual photos. We're in casual clothes. We're not, you know, we're just hanging. And he goes, no, no, I need the, <laughs> I need the martini. I need it. I go, okay, okay. So we would he'd be talking, and he's having the martini. This is a live martini too. And uh, after about, you know, as the martini dropped. As he, you know, he, there was a point where he was really on top of it with the martini. You can hear him on some of the, I'm not sure if this is all in the final cut, but he'd say, oh, the, the martini's really kicking in now because I'm really remembering the dates, you know? <laughs> and, and I'd say, yes, it is. But after the martini's done and we've done, you know, about an hour, I said, you know, well, we're good. Let's, let's resume next time. And so, because we're, <laughs> we're, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so then he'd, he'd go off and, and, and handicap his sports bets, you know, and stuff. You know, th that was his next project. But that was something that the, the martini was an integral part of lubricating this, this these interviews. It was really, really funny that way. I mean, you and I are talking about Oscar like, I mean, you know him really well. And, and I know his history pretty well. Anybody who's a, a, a Vegas history fanatic or I think really has a great idea of who Oscar Goodman is. But... There may be people who are not familiar. Can you kind of fill everybody in on on the history of Oscar Goodman? And I mean, it is a fascinating story. Yeah, he arrived in uh, in uh, 1962 with his uh, new bride Carolyn from Philadelphia, where he was uh, had attended law school, and he was going to uh, begin a career in Las Vegas as uh, as an attorney, as a, as a defense attorney. And uh, through the <laughs> through the course of history, he became almost incidentally known as somebody who could um, was pretty effective with reputed members of the mob of, of organized crime. And that led him to um, such figures as uh, Lefty Rosenthal, uh, Herbie Blitzstein, uh, Tony Spilatro, especially, and um, getting them, uh, you know, f fighting for their r constitutional rights and getting them, you know, um, not guilty uh, verdicts in the face of heavy evidence to the contrary. He represented Jimmy Shagra in the murder of uh, Judge, uh, Judge Wood in San Antonio, Texas, which was a very big case at the time in 1978. Jimmy Shagra was a classic high roller in Las Vegas. And, him and, and he ran the biggest marijuana operation probably in history out of Las Vegas, uh, flying back and forth from, from, uh, uh, from, from South America into Las Vegas. 
on that backdrop, he became a very successful and very wealthy man. He became a very celebrated figure. He was featured in the movie Casino as himself, representing uh, the um, Robert De Niro as Lefty Rosenthal character and Joe Pesci as uh, Tony Spilatro. He became known that way. And as he kind of, um, as his interest in being a defense attorney dissipated, when he felt like he was just doing it to see how much money he could make, he entertained the idea of running for mayor of Las Vegas as his next frontier and ran it through his family, ran it by uh, Carolyn, his wife, and decided to run and won big in his first, uh, his, his first, for his first term, beating a man by the name of Barney Adamson and proceeded to serve three terms as uh, the happiest mayor in the universe, showgirls, martinis, the whole thing. Um, it, it did a lot to uh, initiate change in downtown Las Vegas, the Symphony Park projects, the uh, bringing Zappos uh, from Henderson into downtown Las Vegas was Oscar's um, doing. He, he generated that deal. They broke ground on the Cleveland Clinic. They broke ground on the Smith Center in his tenure, uh, World Market Center. Uh, came to fruition in that time. And uh, I think the only thing that he really felt like he wasn't able to achieve was get in his term was getting a major league sports team, a league in Las Vegas. Um, but stepped down, he was turned out in 2011. Carolyn ran, his wife. She's uh, closing in on the end of her third term. So that means as part of his legacy, we will have had 25 years of Mayor's Goodman in Las Vegas. And uh, now he's got his namesake restaurant at the Plaza, which is a licensing deal. He's got two statues of himself, uh, one at the Plaza and one at the Fifth Street School. One, well, the one at Plaza is with him and is him and Tony Spilatro, which has raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of concern for people who don't like the mob. <laughs> Private business, so, you know. So. But the, the one uh, downtown is a, a publicly available. It shows Oscar holding a martini out front, right, on the, uh, right in front of the Fifth, legendary, the historic Fifth Street School. And there you have it. And he's still doing his uh, monthly um, dinner series talks at the Oscars restaurant and recounting uh, his career, everything from uh, his time with his clients, his battles with the law enforcement. He was a co-founder of the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas and is a great ambassador for that project. And uh, is still, a, a, you know, even in his 80s, his mid-80s, he's still uh, mentally very sharp and gives a great performance in his, uh, his dinner series. So that's how and I've known him from the beginning of his first term. I've, somehow I've known Oscar all the way through on some level better today than ever, especially after, <laughs> after spending 17 <laughs> hours with him. I'm like, wow, I really, I mean, now we're so comfortable around each other. It's like, it's interesting what happens, but I get him. I get him, what he is uh, is about through this whole process. He's a very proud man, very intelligent man, dedicated to his family and his wife, for sure. Following my trip to Vegas in May of 2023, I released a trip report episode where I shared some of the negative experiences I had during that trip. I got a lot of feedback about that episode from people, some agreeing with me and others strongly disagreeing with me. Then it happened. This past summer, Sam Novak, columnist for Vegas411.com and creator of the Vegas Unfiltered blog, released an article titled, This is the Worst Time in History to Visit Las Vegas. 
in that article, Sam covered a lot of the same complaints that I had about what was happening in Vegas at the time, including construction chaos, out of control tipping, skyrocketing costs, and the general overall state of the strip. So I asked him to join me on episode number 160 of the podcast to talk about it. I hit him with the big question. What will it take for Vegas to figure things out, turn itself around, and go back to being the affordable vacation destination it was known to be for all those years? I don't know if that's ever going to actually happen, um, and I'll tell you why. The the tourist base that, that they're looking to grab right now is one, the sports fan, and the party goers, the young people, the young crowd that wants to go into the nightclubs and go to the beach clubs during the day and spend, 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 spend. They, they waste a lot of money. I can be judgmental here and say out of sheer stupidity. They don't, they're not planning for tomorrow. We're coming to Vegas, you know, Vegas woo. Let's go crazy. There will always be young people that haven't had something to judge the Vegas experience by. They're gonna come here and what is our current situation is going to be their normal standard. They don't know any differently. And once they get tired of it, there's always going to be somebody coming up. The Vegas is hyped as a wild experience and you can cut loose here. So the old folks are dying off. The young folks don't know any better. And as they pass, it just goes. So I think that it's going to continue to be that way. But I think you're right. So many are just saying, screw it. I'm not coming anymore. And I probably would do the same if I didn't absolutely love my job and love living here and have so many entertainment options. I'm a big entertainment person. I don't like seeing how the the, the emphasis on sporting events is driving the entertainment industry down. That's always been my focus. And I almost feel like I'm trying to be a crusader to protect that. But I'm, I'm, I'm treading water. And so are we in that respect. The city of entertainment, it's kind of ironic. And I wrote articles about that, where some of the headliners here in the city, they have to take breaks from their resident shows and go on tours so that they can make the actual profit. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're able to do that in other cities is they can market themselves as being direct from Vegas. That's a cash line. They will continue to perform here on a limited basis just so they could sell tickets in other cities. Yeah. So there's an irony there. You know, direct from Vegas with a catch is what I call the article. And and it, it, I think it all boils down to a lack of logic. None of this makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Vegas never really did make any sense. It doesn't. I mean, there's there's so many contradictions. We shouldn't even be here. People don't belong in, 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 a, in a city without or, or in a place without water, you know, and, and natural a natural environment that's lethal. We shouldn't be here. None of it makes sense. But even even with that taken into account, the things that go on around us are absolutely nuts. You're either going to continue to roll along with it or you're going to say, I've had enough. But there's always going to be some dust rolling into town. I think that's a, that's a really fair point to make about, as you say, it's almost kind of the old adage of, what is it they say, there's, there's a sucker born every minute? And Vegas used to build itself or used to, to tout itself on those repeat visitors. They loved the people that would come back and they treated you so well if you came back over and over and over again, whether that was comp rooms, comp meals, comp show tickets, whatever. And now it, it kind of feels like they don't really care if you're a repeat visitor. They just want 
a warm body and an open wallet. And that's that's it. And that's all they care about at this point. And that's why your aging resorts like Caesars Palace or the Flamingo, they're falling into disrepair. New visitors want to go and the newest attractions like the Sphere, which I felt this way the moment that it came online. And first of all, I was surprised what it actually did come online. But the focus was on, oh, my God, Las Vegas has this new thing called the Sphere. We used to hear that kind of a response whenever a city would put a new Ferris wheel in. Suddenly, every major city had a Ferris wheel. It's the same with the sphere. Every city is going to have one. The novelty will be gone like this. Mm-hmm. We're already not talking about it anymore. And my remark was, how soon before they start selling advertising on it and it just becomes a billboard? Yeah. It's already been announced. It's yeah. on September 4th, I believe. <laughs> so it's going to be a big, giant billboard. And the world went crazy about an electric snow globe is being repurposed as a sword. Back in January of 2023, I released a special bonus episode of the podcast where I had the chance to talk to a legit pop culture legend, the one and only Chris Hansen formerly of Dateline NBC, and perhaps best known as the host of the famous To Catch a Predator series of investigative reports. Chris is still doing predator investigations on his streaming network, TrueBlue.com, and he hosts a podcast called Predators I've Caught, where he revisits some of his most famous To Catch a Predator episodes. At the time I spoke with Chris, he was getting set to head to Vegas for a run of live shows at the South Point Hotel and Casino, where he'd be talking about To Catch a Predator and Predators I've Caught, plus sharing some never-before-seen footage of the investigations and hosting an interactive Q&A session with the audience. As a person who spent a lot of time watching To Catch a Predator when it first came out back in 2004, it was very cool getting an opportunity to talk to Chris about the history of the show and learning where the initial idea came from. I became aware of an online watchdog group called Perverted Justice. And at that time, its contributors would go into chat rooms uh, on AOL and Yahoo and create a profile of somebody who was unmistakably underage, 12, 13, 14 years old, and they would just exist. And if an adult hit on them, approached them, and if the conversation turned sexual and a meeting was scheduled, they would then post this person on their website, pervertedjustice.com, as somebody who the community should be aware of, somebody who might be dangerous to children. I thought that if we could combine their ability to be decoys in a chat room with our ability uh, at the network at the time to wire a house with hidden cameras and microphones, and confront these guys, it could be pretty compelling. We knew there was a problem. We knew that children were being approached in a very dangerous way online. There was a new way for predators to to, uh, to go after kids. And we thought maybe this would be a way to expose that, to confront people, to create a dialogue and some awareness. We didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I was driving out to the very first investigation in February of 2004 wondering if I had just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money. And with that, my producer called and said, where the hell are you? We've got two guys scheduled to show up in 45 minutes. And before the end of that investigation in Bethpage, Long Island, we saw 17 men surfaced in two and a half days, including a New York City firefighter. 
When you first started doing the stings and the investigations, what was it that surprised you the most? Was it the fact that people were actually showing up? Was it the the type of people that were showing up? What was it? Well, first and foremost, it was the fact that people were even showing up. And then, you know, we got to the second investigation. And what was shocking was we had a clergyman. We had a military guy. We had a teacher. We had people from all walks of life and professions who were having these illicit sexually charged chats with somebody they knew or thought very clearly was a minor and would show up oftentimes bringing condoms, alcohol, uh, and other things related to the sexual liaison they wanted to have. Were you ever shocked at just how brazen some of these guys were? I mean, in watching some of the original To Catch a Predator investigations and reports, it, it was incredible to me to see these guys just walk into the house and, and some of them even going as far as just taking off all their clothes. Oh, yeah. No, it was it was it was absolutely stunning to me in that second investigation where we had the rabbi show up. He walked in like he owned the place at noon on a Wednesday. Another fellow, John Canelli, stripped in the garage and walked in naked. Now, I'd never interviewed a naked man before. I know wardrobe malfunctions happen in, in sports reporting and locker rooms, but nobody had ever trained me for this sort of thing. And as we progressed and up until today, you know, we still do these investigations for the new streaming crime network, True Blue, uh, that we have now. Um, it still amazes me, 19 years almost later, Guys are still showing up. They will even go into the chat and say, is this a Chris Hansen deal? Is this a so-and-so uh, law enforcement department deal? And the decoy says, well, I don't know who that is or what. And they still show up. Sometimes the guys will come around the corner, see me, and my name will be the first words out of their mouth. And routinely, the excuses are, I wasn't going to do anything. I was just here to help the child uh, get her out of this bad behavior pattern. Or I wasn't really going to go through with it, and you know, we're we're just I was just going over a script uh, on a piece that's going to be uh, uploaded in in a matter of minutes on TrueBlue, and it's the same sort of thing. But each and every one of these guys presents a danger to a child. As they went on, were you less and less surprised, or or was there just always a new twist every single time you did this? There's always a new twist, uh, even today. But in the beginning, um, you know, so many people were showing up that we felt compelled to, you know, collaborate with law enforcement for a couple of different reasons. One, it was the only socially responsible way to proceed. Uh, and two, if you took it from a just a pure television production standpoint, it was unfulfilling to the viewer and to, to us as a team of journalists to see these guys just walk off and in some cases not face any consequences. And so in the third investigation with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department and the prosecutor's office there, we did collaborate. And once we finished our part, our interview with the subject, they would leave and then they were arrested and prosecuted. And that's the way it's been ever since. What's amazed me in some of the investigations that I've watched and in some of the podcasts that I've listened to is the guys that get presented with every red flag in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet they still show up. Well, I think it, what, it, what it shows, Jeff, is that there are people out there 
who are willing to cast all their fears aside to fulfill this fantasy, this drive they have to have sex with a child. And it's not just one profile. It's, you know, there's a group of guys who are hardcore heavy hitters who'd be doing this with or without the internet. They're, they're, They're a group of young guys who are socially inept and look at this as a Romeo Juliet situation. And one day the girl will be older and this will be socially acceptable. And those guys can probably be given probation and some sort of education and therapy and monitoring that will prevent them from offending again. They'll learn that lesson. But the, the, the these guys in the middle, the uh, professional, the doctor, the lawyer, the cop, who probably wouldn't be doing this, without the internet, but they develop these fantasies, these obsessions, and they blur the lines that we have in society traditionally between adults and children. And they, they, they have this drive to fulfill it and they see the opportunity and it's fueled by the 24 hour access to the internet, the addictive quality. And sometimes the anonymity it provides, these people start by saying things online. They wouldn't say face to face and it develops into this obsession that they have to fulfill. Thanks for joining me on this little trip down memory lane as we revisited some of my favorite conversations with some awesome content creators. If you want to check out the full episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.